Welcome to the New Big Five podcast. I'm Graham Green. My guest today is the American wildlife photographer, Tim Lehman. Tim, thanks for being on the New Big Five podcast. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Graham. Tim is a field biologist, a cameraman and a photojournalist who's taken wildlife photography to another level with extraordinary photo shoots from Antarctica to Indonesia, including his very famous photo of an orangutan high in the canopy that won him the 2016 Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. His work can be seen in National Geographic magazine and on Nat Geo, the BBC and Netflix. Tim, I wanted to ask, first of all, what was it that first got you into wildlife? I got interested in sort of nature and outdoor, you know, exploring the outdoors when I was a teenager. Uh, Simultaneously with that, I developed an interest in photography. I think my first real wildlife photograph that I took when I was in uh, high school uh, I, I volunteered to go help with a, a, a project putting ring, ringing uh, raptors, ringing uh, black kites, in, and uh, I got to climb up in a tree uh, to a nest and, and help you know, band a, a chick, uh, and I also had a chance to take some pictures there uh, of this you know, amazing bird up close, and I think that's like the first picture of rural wildlife that I took. You were climbing trees right from the start. I was, yeah. It was one of my first experiences with like real, real wildlife biologist was like, you know, getting to climb a tree up to a, up to a raptor nest. So that uh, maybe started, you know, kind of planted a seed there. Are you sure that you actually wanted to be a photographer and you didn't just want to spend your life climbing trees? (laughs) Well, uh, I certainly have enjoyed the, you know, exploratory aspect of getting up into trees and, uh, you know, especially in the rainforests around the world where, you know, you climb a huge tree and there's just so much life up there to discover and you know you're the very first one ever to go up that tree. Uh, and there's definitely an, an excitement there. That must be an incredible feeling. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's really the sense of, you know, desire to explore new places that drew me to, you know, first going to volunteer to be a, you know, research assistant in the rainforest of Indonesia uh, after my university time um, and, uh, you know, wanted to see places and explore, you know, remote parts of the world. Yeah, because I mentioned that you'd sort of taken things to new heights, and 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 I meant by that that you do go to extraordinary lengths for your shoots, both in terms of time and in terms of the practicality of them. Um, what drives that? Is that a necessity to get the kind of photos that you want? Certainly, uh, I want to get you know images of species that haven't been well photographed. It's always been a kind of a driving thing to not go um, to document something that's been really that's really well known but to try to tell stories about the lesser known species and uh so that often involves going to really remote places and and going to you know putting a lot of effort into access and and time in the field uh to be able to capture unique you know unique moments what's been the most difficult or challenging of those assignments as a whole my work on the birds of paradise has been the most challenging, uh, New Guinea, the big island where birds of paradise are found, is you know remote and hard to get to. It's often uh, requires a lot of remote travel involving you know bush planes and trekking into the mountains and so on just to get to the location. And then you know finding the birds uh, and their display sites can be very time consuming and hard. Uh, require a lot of you know local experts and uh, assistance. And then once you even find where the birds are displaying, then, then having the, the, uh, the luck to 
have females come and males actually do their thing and get the full display and so on. So that's a process uh, that I've gone through for many different species. And some of them were, you know, extremely frustrating and challenging. And I, you know, I never even got what I wanted. Uh, fortunately, since there are 39 species, uh, I managed to document all of them, at least some, uh, somewhat, and some of them, you know, much better than others. But uh, it's an ongoing challenge. Uh, definitely a lot more to be done. Are they worth the work? I know they're a, they're a fascination for you, aren't they? Yes, indeed. I found them to be, yeah, very worth the work. There are some really spectacular species, and also I find it very satisfying to be able to, you know, document the display behavior in a new way or in a, you know, capture images that uh, of species that maybe are famous in the sense that people have heard of Birds of Paradise, but they haven't, you know, really seen the images of what they're like and how they how they behave in the wild. And so um, it's been very satisfying to uh, to be able to, you know, capture some of those moments. Um, I think anyone familiar with your work will know that orangutans are a subject that's close to your heart, one of the world's most beautiful and at-risk species. I wanted to ask about that orangutan photo that I mentioned in the introduction up in the canopy. Can you tell the story? How much work and time went into getting that photo? You know, I'm very fortunate in that uh, my wife, Cheryl Mott, uh, is a primatologist. She's been studying orangutans in, in Borneo for over 25 years at this research site in uh, western Borneo in a place called Gunung Palung National Park. And I've been also doing research there uh, in my earlier part of my career and have been doing various photography projects there and, and you know, following along with Cheryl's uh, orangutan project and documenting orangutans has been a, a, you know, the sort of biggest long-term project of my career. And from the very early years, uh, you know, I realized that I was really missing a type of image of orangutans by always just being on the ground, following them with a the telephoto lens. And I was missing, what I was missing was kind of a wide angle shot of an orangutan in its landscape, in the habitat that's, you know, the forest that's so important for orangutan survival, right? So um, I had tried over the years a few different times when I found a tree that I thought orangutans would come back to, usually always a feeding tree, you know, that, that had a lot of fruit and I thought, ah, they're going to come back again the next day. I had tried, you know, climbing the tree, rigging up cameras. My first attempts were with SLRs in kind of waterproof housings, kind of a, you know, small box up there. Uh, orangutans always saw those, even if they were camouflaged and, and were wary and avoided them, went around the other way. Uh, and I, over the years, I tried that several different times with sort of smaller and smaller cameras, getting more camouflaged. Orangutans are just too smart. They always saw the lens. They always were suspicious and you know, never went near my cameras to make, create a photo. Um, so it was in 2015 when I decided I found another, you know, situation where that was the right tree. This tree was unique because it wasn't touching any other trees up in the canopy. The typical forest tree, you know, has many branches where the orangutan might be able to come in from other neighboring trees and you can't, it's hard to predict their root. But this particular tree, which, which had a fruiting fig growing in it, uh, was, isolated in the, at the canopy level. So the orangutans had to climb over onto the trunk from down from a smaller trees down below and then climb up the trunk, which also had this amazing strangler fig root kind of going down it. So when I, when I was observing the orangutans feeding in that tree one day, uh, I realized, hey, this is the perfect tree for this, you know, kind of remote camera. And so this time I decided to 
try using the really small GoPro cameras because, you know, the Rontons have been so wary of everything else. So I, I went up there after the Rontons left. What I do is I use a bow and arrow and I first shoot a fishing line over the tree branch, pull up my climbing rope and then uh, climb up there. And I rigged up several GoPros with wireless, you know, connections to controllers on the ground. And over the next like three or four days, uh, there was enough fruit in that tree that um, there were two orangutans that came back, you know, more than once. They came back several times. And so over those several days, I spent, you know, whenever the orangutans weren't there, I was like climbing back up the tree to change batteries or change the angles of the cameras and play with the shot. And uh, eventually this uh, one of the orangutans climbed up, you know, just where I'd hoped along the big route descending the tree trunk and uh, came into the frame at the right place. And uh, I was able to capture that image of which was this, you know, really wide shot showing the rainforest, but with an orangutan like climbing up toward the camera. Uh, so, yeah, quite a bit of work that went into that, but it was it was well worth it. It's an incredible photo. I wondered what it was like when you looked at that photo. You realized what you've got with all the the time that had gone into taking it, all the effort, all the logistics. How did it feel to see a photo um, that must have been so satisfying? Yeah, it's always really uh, tense and exciting when you when you you know, you're not looking through the camera, so you're, you're reviewing the images from a remote camera on your laptop, like right there in the field after climbing the tree and bringing the car, memory card down, you know, plugging it into the laptop and seeing what we got. Uh, it, you know, there were several shots where the Rontown was just was going too fast and it was blurry and he sort of paused at the, just at the right spot briefly. Uh, so it was a very, you know, satisfying and exciting moment. I remember, you know, letting out sort of like a whoop of excitement with my assistant there as we uh, quickly glance through the images on the laptop. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, really, really <laughs> exciting moment. Orangutans, as, as many people will know, are facing severe threats in Indonesia and Malaysia, um, as are many other animals there. And you mentioned that you've spent a long time working in this area. There's, uh, I know there's palm oil plantations, there's logging, and there's other causes of deforestation. Could you talk about what you've seen firsthand there in terms of the damage being caused? Yes, I've been going to uh, Borneo, you know, that part of Indonesia for over 30 years now. And there's been a huge change in the amount of forest. I mean, the area where we primarily work, uh, which is now protected as a national park, is still in good shape. But the surrounding areas, you know, which were all forested or not all, but, you know, largely forested, has have uh, there's a huge proportion of those have been converted to agriculture in the last 30 years, uh, you know, including oil palm and other crops, you know, in a way it's frustrating and sad to think about all that rainforest and that's, that's been lost. And if you look at the kind of numbers of decline of orangutans, there are various, you know, projections about how many, uh, what percentage has been lost in the last 50 years. And if you just draw a line, you know, it looks like it's going straight down toward extinction, right? It's like in the next 20 years or something. Uh, so that is very disconcerting. Uh, I guess I remain a bit more optimistic though than some because I do see a growing uh, improvement in Indonesia in terms of protecting the remaining protected areas like the national mm. parks. There was mm. a lot of illegal logging in the 90s, late 90s and the 2000s in the parks, but that has been really gotten under control. And from what I've seen, um, there's a lot more effort being put into, you know, controlling illegal logging. And fortunately, for example, in the case of Gunung Palung, the park had not burned. It did not get, you know, and the illegal logging was very, 
targeted on the high value trees. So uh, the forest is actually aerial photos show that, you know, the forested areas have uh, the areas that were heavily logged have actually recovered and are in, in the sense that all the smaller trees that were left behind are growing up to fill those gaps. So the actual forest cover in the park has actually increased in the last 10 mm. years. Uh, and so I guess I feel, you know, encouraged that Indonesian people are getting more uh, focused on protecting their remaining forested areas. And so I think that this curve that looks like it's steeply dropping down toward extinction is going to flatten out and as people get serious about protecting the remaining areas. And there are, you know, good chunks of habitat like Gunung Palung, which has probably about 5,000 orangutans in that landscape, including the park and the surrounding buffer zone areas. Uh, and so, you know, my, my wife, Cheryl, and, and I are working closely with her, her NGO that is focused around, you know, protecting that landscape and working with the authorities there, the Indonesians, to, um, to help protect that landscape. So even though it sounds really grim, all hope isn't lost. Um, I guess there's a sad irony, not just in Indonesia, not just in Borneo, but in other parts of the world, like the Amazon, that often the places that are so rich with wildlife are also very rich in resources that people want to exploit. Yes, certainly these uh, forests are, you know, full of valuable timber and they're, you know, in places where you can also grow really productive crops. So there's always that trade-off. And uh, yeah, it's obviously really important that we put enough value on the on the biodiversity in the intact forests to protect enough of it. We've talked about the orangutans, but these are areas as well where there's Sumatran rhinos, elephants. Um, could you talk a little bit about the wildlife that is there in Borneo that is at risk? Yes. I mean, Borneo has uh, incredible diversity of wildlife. It's one of the oldest, you know, rainforest areas of the world where rainforest has persisted in Borneo through, you know, many, many ice ages and, you know, uh, millions of years has been a forested island, whereas other parts of the tropics, uh, there's been more continental movement and so on. Borneo is one of the places with some of the most ancient forests that are, so that's one reason they're so diverse. For example, in Gunapalang, there are like 240 species of birds, you know, there are thousands of species of plants. Uh, so speaking of the birds, there are, you know, uh, just in this one park, there are eight different kinds of hornbills, they're all found in that park. And also, take another example of the cats. There are five species of cats in Borneo that range from a small little leopard cat up to the biggest one is a clouded leopard, you know, a small leopard that, uh, and in between there are, you know, marbled cat, uh, you know, flat-headed cat, and this really rare one called the bay cat. There are five species of cats. So they're, they can all be found in this one lowland forest in Gunung Palung National Park. And there are other parks around Borneo, other protected areas that also harbor that kind of biodiversity. Although Gunung Palung is one of the real standouts because it does include true lowland forest um, and a diversity of habitats. Mm. Um, so, so there's incredible richness there to be protected. And, you know, I was also inspired by a talk I heard from a colleague who works in Sumatra, Ian Singleton, a conservationist working in the you know island of Sumatra, um, and talking about the forest there and the diversity and the fact that there's been a lot of oil palm, you know, plantations that have replaced forest outside the park. I mean, he made the great point that, you know, as long as we keep like a significant refuge, like a thousand square kilometers, like Gunung Palang is, uh, that has the full complement of biodiversity, you know, that can be a source population for 
uh, for us to increase in the future. I mean, there's if we really think in the long term, yes, okay, there's maybe a huge oil palm plantation next to Gunapalm right now. Well, oil palm plantation has a 25-year lifespan. You know, in 25 years, it's going to either be cut down and replanted or turn into something else. But, you know, if we have the political will and the motivation and the finances, we, there's no reason why the government or a private conservation group couldn't buy that plantation and reforest it, you know. And the, as long as those species in the adjacent national park are still there, they can spread in and gradually, it'll take hundreds of years to completely reach this full, full diversity. But, you know, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Of course, there's some big ifs in there. Um, with palm oil in particular, I mean, we know, you know, people are logging these areas, but with palm oil, it's this, you know, for people listening, it's palm oil is in our food and in beauty products and, and in so many of the things that we buy in the supermarkets. It seems to me um, very difficult for people to know what to do because it is so widespread. It's so ubiquitous. And I think if, even if people didn't want to buy products that were causing some of the problems, it's hard for them to avoid. Do you have any advice? Uh, I think, yeah, palm oil is not going to go away completely. It's a hugely valuable crop. If it wasn't palm oil, the, you know, there probably would be a different type of agricultural product that was produced on that land. I mean, humans, you know, have cleared a lot of land in, in all over the world for supporting our vast population. So palm oil just happens to be, you know, the most productive food crop that there is in terms of the amount of kilos of you know, edible product per, per hectare. So it's it's not going to go away. But I think, you know, conscientious consumers to try to avoiding um, reducing the consumption of palm oil could, could you know, help to reduce the continued expansion of it. Um, I think that places like the governments of Indonesia, they have placed a ban on logging new forests, you know, primary rainforest for palm oil. I'm not sure that's being enforced everywhere. Uh, and so there's certainly room for that, you know, putting into pressure for, for that rule to be enforced. But yeah, I would say, but, you know, try to be a conscientious consumer and um, insist on, you know, if you have to buy something with palm oil, they, there are companies that are sort of have, you know, certified palm oil that's coming from places where they're not clearing new forest. And certainly by, you know, just being good consumers and reducing our, our demand, we could perhaps, uh, slow the expansion or stop the expansion of further further palm oil and just yeah I think Tim uh, sometimes issues like this feel a bit abstract I know that I've read lots of articles about it but until you actually see it I think it can can remain quite abstract could you paint a picture for people um, something that can communicate really what this looks like what the effect is well the contrast really couldn't be more striking between a intact rainforest where every tree you walk by is a different species practically because there are so many different kinds of trees uh, and that supports such an incredible variety of life and then if you you know I mean you can fly over sections of Borneo and just see this one palm tree the oil palm planted in rows going on for you know just kilometers and kilometers and kilometers just endless um, and very few animals live there just a handful of animals that can live in there as opposed to hundreds and thousands that live in the rainforest areas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very stark difference. And what about the wildlife? I mean, you must have seen some uh, quite heartbreaking things, I would have guessed, in this area. I think the most uh, you know, heartbreaking thing that I've seen is when forces cleared, uh, orangutans are forced to you know come into contact more with people they're 
they don't have enough food, so they're going into people's gardens or, you know, fruit crop, fruit orchards and, um, you know, trying to find food. So then they're coming into conflict with people. And then, and then this leads to, you know, either out of trying to protect their crops or out of being opportunistic, people have often, you know, will kill the mother orangutan and take the baby, maybe keep it as a pet or try to sell it in the illegal pet trade. Um, have you seen that happen? I've, I've, you know, I've been along, um, accompanied a team that was alerted about a, um, a pet orangutan in a village. Uh, so I went with a team from the wildlife department and a veterinarian from a local care facility. We went to the, they were going to, you know, confiscate that, that baby from, uh, the people in the village that were holding yeah. it. So yeah, I've, I've seen that, you know, little tiny baby orangutan without a mother, you know, and, uh, the sad thing is that, you know, orangutans depend on learning. You know, they're highly intelligent creatures that learn everything they need to know about how to be an orangutan, how to live in the rainforest through uh, their mother and other orangutans they encounter over a, you know, at least eight year to eight to ten year period. Right? They they don't become independent until they're around ten years old. So yeah. they have a lot to learn. So you know, a baby orangutan that's brought up by humans in a captive situation, um, even though you might be well-intentioned and trying to release those animals into some forest at some point, it's orangutan without its cultural knowledge, you know? Yeah. Of course, orangutans are um, so expressive. I think they're very close to us, aren't they, in terms of DNA? They're so expressive and they're so human-looking that it, you, I guess you really get a sense of the suffering they're going through. Yes, I mean they're obviously are one of our closest relatives. They share ninety-seven percent of our DNA. The only, you know, animals that are close, more closely related to us are chimpanzees and, and gorillas, which are just slightly, you know, more closely related. So, yeah, you definitely see that uh, incredible, you know, connection that we have as as great apes. I just want to pause there to briefly explain to people listening: this podcast we're doing is part of the New Big Five project, where we're creating a new Big Five of wildlife. The old Big Five was focused on the most difficult animals in Africa for hunters to shoot and kill. It was all about hunting. The new Big Five that we're creating is all about wildlife photography and celebrating these animals whilst they're alive. It's about wildlife from all over the world, not just in Africa. So to everyone listening, I want to say please go on to the new Big Five website, newbigfive.com, and vote for your own personal choices for five animals that you'd like to be included in the new Big Five. On the website, we've also got many different articles, interviews, photography, podcasts on these big issues facing wildlife, from deforestation to poaching. Uh, Tim, I'm asking every photographer that I talk to this very lively question. I wondered, can you name your personal top five of wild animals to photograph and to see in photos? Wow, that's a, that's a tough choice. Yeah, let's see. Uh, well, orangutans obviously come to mind immediately as my personal favorite my kind of one of my lifelong you know passion projects documenting them so i would definitely vote for orangutans i'm going to think about some of the other animals that i photographed around the world that i mm. really enjoyed and i think are amazing to photograph. i guess along with sticking with the great apes theme um gorillas have to be right up there because i had a chance um to photograph mountain gorillas a couple times in my life both many years ago and uh what was then zaire and more recently in rwanda that's just an amazing species to encounter yeah capture on film uh i guess it's hard to pass up elephants uh -huh. elephants are so fascinating to watch um 
such interesting behavior. Uh, I've definitely spent some, you know, enjoyable time photographing elephants. Elephants, I'd put them high on my list. Um, uh, it's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to pick, you know, to pick how to narrow it down. Obviously, the cats are very attractive. Um, yeah, I think um, I'm trying to think of some of the my own personal sort of peak moments uh, in my own wildlife photography experiences and some of the animals I've photographed. Uh, I want to... Hmm. All right, well... I definitely would like to choose one of the big cats. I haven't had that much experience photographing big cats. Uh, I've photographed lions and cheetahs a little bit. I find cheetahs really fascinating, and I know they're really endangered, and I would love to someday you know, see a proper cheetah hunt. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to say a cheetah would be one of my top five that I would like to see, and I've also just seen amazing photographs of. I think it's a very cool animal to photograph so i cheat it to my list one last choice my last choice i'm gonna um i'm gonna pick a species that i've never photographed but that i would like to photograph uh and i would i'm gonna say polar bears because uh yeah i think polar polar bears are also you know facing such uh threats from loss of sea ice in many areas and uh just the spectacular species that um, I've never had the chance to see myself in the wild, but I would love to someday. And so that would be kind of high on my list of a species to go and photograph myself. Um, I think they should be on the list. Well, Tim, I think I'm going to need to send you an award for the person who struggled most with that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, but that's a really good five. Um, and I think I almost don't need to ask, but the number one animal that you like to photograph is the orangutan. Yes, I'm going to go with it. The orangutan would be my number one. Why is that? I mean, you've talked about the, the threats to them, but from a photographic point of view, what is it that appeals? Well, I like the challenge. Uh, it's not an easy species to photograph. It requires long days of following them through the forest um, and climbing trees sometimes to do some unique images, as we've talked about. Uh, they uh, And there's so much interesting behavior that orangutans do, but they don't do it that often. So it's really hard to get a good shot of them, you know, building a nest or, you know, making a leaf umbrella or uh, many other things that they, that they do different, you know, mother infant interactions and so on. So I just feel like even though I've spent many years photographing orangutans, uh, you know, I still never captured the perfect shot and there's so much more to do. You're also one of the few photographers to have photographed the newly recognized Tapanuli orangutan. Is that right? That's correct. I was really fortunate, um, back in 2015 to be able to go to the the Batang Toru Forest, where this new species of Tapanui orangutan was described from. I mean, at the time, we didn't even know that it was a distinct species, but I had heard that there was something different about this population, you know, that they were studying it, and I thought that would be fascinating to document. Um, and then it, you know, turned out to be uh, genetically distinct and recognized as a new species. So, yeah, I kind of lumped orangutans together, and I've mostly no, that's okay. worked on boarding orangutans, but there are definitely three species of distinct species of orangutans that are all very worthy uh, subjects and uh, are all endangered. What was it like to see such a rare one as that newly discovered one, though? 
yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard to describe the feeling, you know, when you're when you're out in the forest. It's a really remote place, hard to get to, long hikes to get into there and find them. Um, not so many habituated, you know, animals. There is a small research team there, so it's really difficult to get um, good views of them and close to them. We managed to to find one big male, uh, Tapanuli orangutan. It was amazing to be following him and and getting some good shots of him and just knowing that. You know, he's one of just a few hundred of that species of great ape that's left in the world. So uh, it was just a real sense of privilege being there. Um, and also, you know, also a responsibility feeling like, you know, getting some good images and, and getting spreading the story of this species could really have an impact on hopefully on their conservation. So, um, yeah, mixed mixed emotions there. Yeah. A lot of what we've been talking about with the new Big Five is these big iconic animals. They're obviously very popular with people, things like elephants and lions and gorillas. One of the things that I like as a photographer, and I know you do too, is to find these lesser known animals. We we live in this incredible and often weird world. Um, so I wondered, is there a, an animal or a creature that you photographed, one that perhaps doesn't get the attention it deserves and, and merits? Yes, one of the species that comes to mind that I photographed that um, deserves a lot more attention would be the proboscis monkey of Borneo. Mm. This is a really unique primate. It's only found in Borneo and not even all over Borneo. It's only found in certain habitats along big rivers. Uh, so it's got a very limited distribution and, and also you know, comes into conflict with humans a lot because people have developed these coastal you know, riverine forest areas. So this is a really fascinating primate that uh, has, you know, webbed feet so it can swim across rivers. It's got this big, big, huge nose that gives it its name, the proboscis monkey. Uh, and, yeah, just one of, one of many different lesser-known monkey species around the world that are endangered and, all, and deserve more attention. I photographed them probably about a decade ago in Malaysia. They are really striking animals, aren't they? Of, of course, the nose isn't that fortunate as a feature, but they are quite a strange creature aren't they exactly yeah they're not exactly the most attractive of monkeys uh with their strange nose but yes they're they're fascinating you know in their behavior and they're actually you know quite photogenic because they're such they have such a lush orangish coat uh they look really great standing out against the uh, forest background and uh can can lead to some spectacular photographs as they make these big leaps uh across small creeks and sometimes don't make it landing in the water and, uh, you know, creating a huge, huge splash. And, and so they're, they're actually a very, uh, you know, fun subject to photograph as well. Yeah. Um, Tim, we've talked a, a couple of times about conservation. I know you're a member of the International League of Conservation Photographers and that conservation runs through your work. I just wanted to ask um, how you feel about the future. It seems that we have many, many serious issues facing wildlife at the moment um, that maybe we're not addressing them anywhere near as quickly as we should. What are your thoughts? Are you hopeful for for the future? Well, uh, yeah, things are not looking great right now, but I do uh, I do have hope for the future. I believe that we can turn things around. Um, I think you can't be a conservationist if you aren't an optimist at heart and feel that uh, you know we just need to keep um, keep working uh, because. Uh, I'm encouraged, for example, by things like the young people of Indonesia. I've seen a huge change in the last 30 years I've been going there in terms of awareness about environmental issues and pride in their own 
wildlife in their country and, and, and concern about conservation. And so, yeah, it's about, you know, voting in leaders who will take uh, leadership in the environmental issues. And, um, you know, I'm a big supporter of uh, American biologist E.O. Wilson's proposal that, you know, we should work towards setting aside half of the earth for the rest of the species. I mean, uh, right now, I think just more than 20% of Earth's and you know land and oceans are under protected status, and we have a potential to you know greatly increase that, and, and really, uh, especially as people are sort of concentrating more in cities, um, we can set aside you know a lot more space on the planet, and for a long-term coexistence, I think we need to strive for that long-term goal of uh, setting aside you know 50% for the rest of the planet. Well, Tim, that's a, a good place to end. Um, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much for being on the New Big Five podcast. Thanks a lot, Graham. It's been a pleasure. To everyone listening, please go on to the New Big Five website, newbigfive.com, and vote for your choices to include in the New Big Five of wildlife photography. On the website, you can find many more podcasts, as well as interviews with photographers and conservationists, articles on climate change, conservation, and the world's wildlife, photography tips, photo galleries, and plenty more. Please help us spread the word about the New Big Five project by sharing it on social media. Hashtag New Big Five. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. If you'd like to get involved with the project, drop us a line. Contact details are on the website. Thanks for listening.